This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You're listening to a section of the LibriVox NaNoWriMo project, in which a number of LibriVox volunteers write and record a whole novel together, in serial form, during November 2006. The project is based on the idea started by the National Novel Writing Month. Chapter 12 Written and recorded by Michael Sirwa, michael.sirwa, S-I-R-O-I-S, dot com Trevor was astounded at the transformation he had just witnessed. Hazel, just by shifting her bearing, flattening the expression on her face, and adjusting her voice, had become someone else. Someone he had already met. The woman at the travel agency? How is that possible? Good training, among other things, she said, her voice flattening into a standard Midwestern American accent as she continued to speak. You'd be surprised what can happen when you've trained with some of the world's finest acting coaches. Now was not the time to explain to him how difficult it was to be working for two agencies that were at cross-purposes to each other. One minute you're a travel agent convincing someone to go to Cairo, and a few hours later someone else is telling you to go to Cairo and pretend to be a tour guide for a person who will think you're the travel agent who has just booked his tour. Practice makes perfect, though, and Hazel was one of the best agents around at adopting different personalities and making them her own, as evidenced by the astonished look on Trevor's face. He may have been surprised by Hazel's revelation, but he wasn't amused in the slightest. "'I'll ask you again, then,' he said. "'Who are you, really?' She paused and looked at him before answering. "'I've wanted to tell you for quite a while now, but I'm not sure you'll be able to accept what I have to say, and I'm really worried you won't be able to forgive me.' "'Forgive you? For what? For sending me to Cairo? For disappearing in Malta? Or, or for allowing me to get beat half to death by that Fulvia woman?' "'No, Trevor.' I'm sorry about all those things. There's so much I want to tell you, but I just can't right now. I need you to trust me. By trust you, you mean give you the manuscript? No. We have a copy of the manuscript. But time is running out. We need to know where to look inside the manuscript. Trevor pondered this for a minute, and decided he needed to know more before making a commitment. Why did you ask me about the chinchilla? he asked. "'Because we need it to solve the mystery.' He ignored the comment about the mystery, knowing that subject would return as quickly as a bad penny. "'You do know that there is no chinchilla, don't you?' he said. "'I mean, it isn't a real chinchilla, or even an animal at all.' "'Ah!' he screamed in frustration. "'This is a silly conversation.' "'It might not be silly, Trevor, if you knew why I mentioned the chinchilla.' All right. I'll bite. But prove something to me first. She faced him and folded her arms, and the hazel he had first met resurfaced in her personality briefly. But there was something else there, too, something familiar, but he couldn't put his finger on it. Fine, if I can, she said, resigning herself to a potential interrogation. What do you want to know? Well, for starters— what do you know about the chinchilla? Hazel pondered the situation. How much should she tell him now? 
certainly not everything, hopefully just enough and no more. If she could convince him that she had some facts wrong, that would do for a start. All right, she said. I know you first developed the chinchilla in Oxford and Cambridge. Not Oxford. Cambridge. Right. Sorry. Cambridge. And it started out as a sort of prank, being able to guess answers before the question was fully asked, that, that type of thing. What's so unusual about that? Trevor interjected. It was just a parlor trick. It was more than that, Hazel said. The parlor tricks, as you call them, were really lab tests for a technique you had developed. You were one of the early pioneers in artificial intelligence, trying to develop computer programs, long before it became popular to do this, that would mimic the human brain. You did as much work on human intelligence as on machine intelligence, and were considered to be one of the foremost young scientists of your day. And then you just dropped out of sight for a while. He knew he should ask the next question, but the mention of that time was too much for Trevor. He gazed past Hazel and allowed himself to think about something he had locked away for nearly twenty years. Visions of a past era that he had tried desperately to forget were now flooding into his consciousness, overwhelming his circuitry. There was too much information from the past, and it was all mingling with the present information for some reason. He would have to sort it out later. Using the chinchilla to work through this should be a viable option, but he would need a little time. Time to retrain a mental mechanism that had lain fallow in fields of deliberate unconsciousness, ever since the plane crash that had shattered his world. Hazel was waiting for a response, and not receiving one right away, asked Trevor, Are you all right, sweetie? Oh, my God, she'd let it slip. He was still staring into space. Had he noticed? Trevor became aware of his surroundings again. I'm sorry, what did you just say? I asked if you were all right. You seemed to zone out for a little while. Yes, I'm fine. Are you sure? Yes, he replied brusquely, turning away from her. He needed to make some decisions quickly. He had originally set the trip to Prague in motion as a delaying tactic. Thankfully, his ploy at the airport yesterday had worked. If there's anything that's difficult to smuggle out of any country these days, it's weapons. So he knew that Fulvia would be stopped by airport security if he planted something in her suitcase. One of the techniques he had developed while he was working on the chinchilla was a form of hypnotism. Just as a joke, he started calling the technique the sloth, because of the effect it had. Very few people had been able to use it successfully, but Trevor had been one of the best. For those skilled in the technique, it required minimal misdirection, and was very effective at shutting down someone else's thought processes, but only for brief periods of time. It allowed the user to effectively create small blank spaces in someone's memory, and during a time span of a couple of minutes you could accomplish quite a lot. The morning that they were going to leave for Prague, Fulvia had told her henchman, the one she called L-344, to keep her gun while she flew, and Trevor had seen him put it in his shoulder bag. Guns were easily available at the next destination. Top had global agents everywhere, and some were specifically assigned to the task of resupplying other agents' weaponry needs when they had to travel commercially. When Fulvia had L-344 bring Trevor to her room to explain how they were going to leave for Prague and why it would be in Trevor's best interest to be a good boy and behave, 
He used the sloth to put both of them into trances. He used it on L-344, just outside Fulvia's door, because L-344 was slower-witted and would remain under for a little while longer. He stepped in front of L-344, and put Fulvia under as soon as he entered the room, leaving L-344 standing just outside. In the forty-seven seconds that Fulvia remained in the trance, and the minute and twenty-six seconds that L-344 was under, Trevor had managed, without moving L-344 from his position, to get the gun from his shoulder-bag, and bury it under some of the clothing in Fulvia's suitcase. Just for fun he also wrapped the gun in a red silk negligee, closed the suitcase again, and got back into position in front of Fulvia before she and the henchman returned to consciousness. To them it felt as if there was a brief fog, almost like a déjà-vu moment, when your mind goes slack so it can wonder, this feels familiar. Fulvia and L-344 shook the feeling off and continued as before, not noticing the slight time-lapse. Trevor could use the sloth any time he was clear-headed and had the attention of the person he wanted to put under. He hadn't used the technique for quite a while, and hadn't even thought about it for some time, not having any deep-seated need to blank anyone's memory, however temporarily. So he wasn't prepared to use it when Fulvia first began questioning him, and the pain she inflicted on him during the interrogation made it too difficult for him to implement the sloth with any effectiveness then. Throughout the night, following his beating, Trevor lay awake, practicing the technique, and readying himself for the first good opportunity to use it. At first his primary idea was simply to get away, but the more he thought about it, the more he realized that he needed for this game to play itself out to the end, whatever that might be. Whatever happened, he certainly didn't want to stay in the clutches of a sadist like Fulvia, who was obviously an honors graduate of S&M University. Anyway, he thought, I need to worry about what to do next. He wasn't sure whether he could trust anybody at this point, maybe not even his sister Tracy, certainly not Fulvia, but should he trust Hazel? She was standing next to him with such a look of deep concern on her face that he wanted to let her in wanted to tell her his secrets. He felt a strong connection to her, even beyond the obvious attraction he felt for her. But he wasn't sure if that meant anything, or if the events of the past few days had just left him vulnerable to these sorts of emotions, emotions he had successfully avoided since the plane crash that had taken Rebecca from him, emotions he hadn't felt again until his trip to Cairo and meeting Hazel Brown, if that actually was her name. "'I'm sorry,' he said aloud, facing Hazel, giving her a smile that he hoped wasn't too false. "'The past few days have been a little too much for me, and I just need some time to process it all.' "'Trevor,' she said, "'I know this has been hard on you. It would be a lot for anyone to take, but we really need your help.' "'Who is we?' "'I can't tell you that.' "'Why is this so important?' I can't tell you that either. He gave her a look of frustration, which caused her to quickly add, Sorry. What can you tell me? Not much. Give me something to go on, he said, his annoyance clearly showing on his face. Hazel stepped forward, took both his hands in hers, and looked him deep in the eyes. Sincerely and thoughtfully, she said, I know this isn't enough and you have no reason to trust me. 
but I'm asking you to believe that there are some very bad people out there who want to misuse your talents, and I'm not one of them. I promise you that I will tell you everything you need to know, but I just can't right now. Trevor said, Well, you're right. It isn't enough. But at least you're not beating me over the head with a metal rod. We need to go. He headed for the front door to the library, tugging her behind him. Where are we going? she asked. Just across the street for now, but eventually— He paused. Tell me, this— free for the rest of my life ticket my uncle joffrey gave me did the people you work for have anything to do with that no we're not worldcon airlines we're the good guys <sighs> he sighed he would have to trust somebody eventually it might as well be the woman he was sure he was falling in love with come on he said let's go see professor prezak the linguist he's here yes Right over there, he said, pointing to the building behind the statue of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles the Fourth, founder of Charles University. That's the Aula, the main building of the university. They can tell us where Professor Prezak's office is. He's got the part of the manuscript you want. My agency has the whole thing, Trevor. Yes, I know. You told me. But you have a translation. Dr. Prezak has the original and it's not in English. What language is it in? she asked. You'll see. As they stepped into the street, Hazel pondered their situation, still not knowing how much she could or should tell Trevor. She had a new life now, although not entirely one of her own choosing, and she was sure it would cause him pain to know she had been alive all this time and not told him. It would have been so much simpler if the agency had never recruited her. That was such a long time ago, when she was still a first-year student at Cambridge, still the young and impressionable Rebecca Sharp. The agency recruited her, paid her way through college, and trained her in a wide variety of techniques that she convinced herself she would never have to use. She was interested in the intrigue of it all, the idea of helping to create a better world, and being something different than plain Becky, as her mother used to call her. It was in her second year at the university that she met Trevor, and they fell in love. He was so brilliant and just the perfect man for her. Before long it was understood that they would marry after college, raise a whole flock of children, and settle somewhere in the countryside. Trevor would work on his scientific experiments, and she would give up the spy business and never tell Trevor about that side of her life. There were plenty of other professions she could enter, and with her other skills she could be very successful at almost anything. Life would go on, and they would be deliriously happy. And then the plane crash happened. It wasn't planned, of course. She was just returning from a short vacation abroad, anxious to see Trevor again. They were flying in horrid weather, and the pilot had assured everyone that they would stay above it as much as possible. But something must have been wrong with the plane's navigation equipment, because the plane descended out of a cloud, and found itself fifty yards away from the peak in the Pyrenees. The pilot tried to pull the plane up, but it was too late. Everyone died but her. And she would have perished, too, if a Basque shepherd hadn't gone up into the mountains to investigate, and found her, barely alive. Other rescuers arrived at the crash site much later, and made the obvious assumption that everyone had died. The shepherd took care of her the best he could, but sent his cousin into town to call the phone number she kept reciting in her fevered sleep. It was the agency's phone number, of course 
and they sent field personnel to transport her quietly back to England. Months of physical therapy restored her body to its former self, as much as can be achieved in those kinds of serious injuries at any rate. The agency, having allowed everyone to believe she was dead, also saw a golden opportunity, and had their best plastic surgeons work on the minor damage that had occurred to Rebecca's face, but had them create an entirely new look for her also. New look, new identity, new agent, unknown to anyone on the other side. Hazel Brown was born. When she saw what they had done, she was furious, and refused to work for them. But, over time, they appealed to her sense of duty, and convinced her that it was the right thing to do. She grieved for Trevor. Putting him out of her mind had been impossible, but she convinced herself it was better for Trevor if he weren't connected with the work she would now be doing. She remained convinced of that until he walked through the doors of the travel agency. She played her part convincingly, but ached inside with every word she spoke, and now she would have to continue to play the part of Hazel until she could tell Trevor in a way that wouldn't cause him to hate her. The Ola's façade was covered with red brick, and had steel-framed windows across the entire ground floor. The name, Universitas Carolina, was affixed to the front of the building. The courtyard was comprised of sections of concrete, into which a steel fencing was installed, giving the exterior a strangely modern appearance, partly because of its opposition to the older plaster-walled side buildings, which were topped with red-tile roofs. Inside the aula they found an admissions office, and Trevor asked, in fluent Czech, where the professor's office was. Not knowing that Trevor could speak Czech, Hazel was impressed. The woman at the desk replied, and although Hazel couldn't understand what was being said, Trevor seemed to attach great importance to it. He grabbed her hand and pulled her quickly back outside. "'Come on,' he said. "'We have to get out of here right now.' "'What did that woman say?' "'Professor Prezak isn't here. He's giving a series of lectures, and will be gone for over a week.' "'But the manuscript pages could be here, couldn't they?' "'Doubtful.' "'Why not?' Hazel asked, tired of the lack of information. "'Because he was asked to not let the pages out of his sight, and I think he would have honored that request.' But even if he hadn't, the pages would probably be gone if these agencies you talk about are as thorough as you say. Why is that? she asked. Because, he replied, looking at his watch, we aren't the first people to ask about the professor today. A tall, slim, dark-haired woman, expensively dressed, wearing four-inch stiletto heels, asked the same questions about an hour ago. Do we dare take Worldcon Airlines this time? I think so she replied. It would be the fastest way. Besides, it would give me time to arrange for false identification and credit cards for the two of us. We could pick them up at our destination. So, where are we going? New York, he said, thinking the eight-hour or so flight would give him plenty of time to practice the chinchilla, and possibly unravel some of the puzzles that were rattling around in his brain. New York State or New York City? she asked. Both, he replied. The city first, and maybe a drive later to Ithaca in upstate New York. What's there? Cornell University. Can we go now? End of chapter 12. Recorded on November 15, 2006, in Houston, Texas.